Lesson 12 for June 10 through to 16, The Day of the Lord. Sabbath afternoon, June 10. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we live in a world where change is inevitable. We live in a world that we know is going to be changed by you eventually. But as we're looking forward to that day, we pray that your word may have messages for us today that will show us just what you would like us to do, but also provide us with the reassurance that we know that we individually need. And today I'd like to pray for everyone who's listening to this podcast, wherever they live, whatever their family situation, whatever their work situation, whatever is happening in their lives, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be there to guide and that they may know Jesus and that Jesus may be theirs forever. I pray in his dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of person ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? Let's read that again, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? In ages past, people who didn't believe in God were seen as untrustworthy, even potentially dangerous. Why? The idea was simple. If they didn't believe in God, then they didn't believe in any future judgment in which they would have to answer before Him for their deeds. Without this incentive, people would have a greater tendency to do wrong. Though such thinking is rather antiquated and politically incorrect today, one cannot deny the logic and reason behind it. Of course, many people didn't need the fear of a future judgment in order to do right. But at the same time, the prospect of answering to God could certainly help motivate correct behaviour. As we've seen, Peter was not afraid to warn about the judgment that evildoers would face before God because the Bible is clear that such a judgment will come. In this context, Peter speaks unambiguously about the end of days, judgment, the second coming of Jesus, and the time that the elements shall melt with fervent heat, as he says in 2 Peter 3.10. Peter knew that we are all sinners, and thus, with such prospects before us, he asks, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Sunday, June 11, The Line of Authority Peter warned his readers about the kind of dangerous teachings the church would face. He cautioned against those who, while promising liberty, would lead people back into the bondage of sin, the opposite of the freedom that we have been promised in Christ. Unfortunately, this wasn't the only false teaching that would confront the church. Another dangerous one would come. However, before Peter gets to this specific warning, he says something else first, and that's recorded in the second Peter chapter three, verses one and two. 
This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Question, what point is Peter making here about why his readers should listen to what he is writing? We'll also look at John 21, verses 15 through to 17. So, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter reminds them of the inspired words that had come before in the Holy Prophets. Thus, he was again pointing them back to the Bible, to the Old Testament. He was reminding them that they had the sure word of prophecy, as he said in chapter 1, verse 19. He wanted to be clear that their beliefs were grounded in the word of God. Nothing in the New Testament justifies the idea that the Old Testament was no longer valid or of little importance. On the contrary, it is the testimony of the Old Testament that helps establish the validity of the New and claims that Peter was making about Jesus. But there's more. Peter then asserts a clear line from the holy prophets of the Old Testament to his own authority as one of the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. He was clear about the calling that he received from the Lord to do what he was doing. No wonder he spoke with such conviction and certainty. He knew the source of his message. And so to finish today, why would the word of God, and not culture or our own judgment or reason, be the ultimate authority in our lives? After all, why else would we keep the seventh-day Sabbath other than because of the word of God? Monday, June 12, The Scoffers After seeking to make his readers mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, that's 2 Peter 3, 2, Peter gets into his specific warning. Perhaps, knowing how dangerous this teaching would be, he sought to impress upon it the authority with which he was writing. Question. Read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. What arguments will sceptics of Christ's return advance? Second Peter 3, beginning at verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, 
walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There's an important similarity between those who promoted false liberty and those who are expressing scepticism about the second coming. The first group walked, as it said in Second Peter 2.10, according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Meanwhile, those who were denying the return of Christ were those who were, as it said just now in Second Peter 3.3, walking according to their own lusts. It's not just a coincidence that sinful passions can lead to false teachings, is it? The scoffers, Peter warned, will ask the pointed question, where is the promise of his coming? In doing so, they will challenge the long-standing belief of Christians that Jesus will return to this earth. And soon, after all, especially because he is talking about the last days, these scoffers will bring up the undeniable reality that many Christians have died, and things do indeed continue to go on, as they always have. On the surface, it's not an unreasonable question. Even Holy Enoch, Ellen White wrote, saw that the righteous and the wicked would go to the dust together and that this would be their end. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 85. And he was troubled by it. If even Enoch, who lived before the flood, struggled with this question, how much more so those living during the thousands of years afterward, and even down to the last days? And what about us today as Seventh-day Adventists? Our very name promotes the idea of Christ's Second Advent. And yet, he still has not come. And yes, we do face the scoffers, just as Peter had predicted we would. In your own faith experience, how do you deal with the fact that Christ has not returned yet? Bring your answer to class on Sabbath. Tuesday, June 13, a thousand years as a day. And we start with a question. In 2 Peter 3, 8-10, how does Peter respond to the argument that the scoffers will bring? What does he say that even now can help us to understand why Christ has not yet returned? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10. through to 10. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter responds to the issue of the unchanging nature of the world. He reminds his listeners that it is not true that the world has continued unchanged since creation. 
Notice how Peter goes right back to the word of God as his source and authority. There was a time of great wickedness, after which God destroyed the world with a flood. And indeed, the flood brought about a great change to the world, one that remains with us today. Peter then says that the next destruction will be by fire, not water, in the verse we've just read. Peter also wrote in 2 Peter 3.8, One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In saying this, Peter may have been reflecting on the words of Psalm 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. In other words, our conception of time is not like God's. So, we need to be careful in the judgments we make about time. From a human perspective, there does seem to be a delay in the return of Christ. But we are looking at things only from our human perspective. From God's perspective, there is no delay. In fact, Peter is saying that extra time has been granted because God is showing his patience. He does not wish that any should perish, as we read in verse 9. The extra time, then, has been allowed to provide opportunity for many to repent. Yet, warns Peter, God's patience should not be taken as an opportunity to postpone a decision about Jesus. The delay of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. A thief who comes at night probably expects to sneak away unnoticed. But while the day of the Lord will come like a thief, it will certainly be noticed. As Peter said in verse 10, The heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Thus, Peter's message is like Paul's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Wednesday, June 14. So what? A young man tried to witness to his mother. He told her about the death of Jesus and the promise of his return. He was fairly proud of himself, thinking that he had done quite an eloquent job. When he finished his mini-sermon about Jesus and the Second Coming, his mother looked at him and said, So, what does that have to do with me now? Question. Read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. How does Peter answer the question, So what does that have to do with me now? And we'll also look at Matthew 24 as well. So Second Peter 3, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, 
you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, who his master made ruler over his household to bring them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master's delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we've said, our very name, Seventh-day Adventist, reveals our belief in the return of Jesus Christ, in the reality of his return. The teaching is foundational. Our whole Christian faith would become meaningless without the return of Christ and all that it promises. But are we not in danger of becoming like the wicked servant in the parable of Matthew 24? We might not be doing the specific kind of evil depicted in the parable, but that's not the point. It is, after all, a parable. Instead, what the parable warns about is that it could become easier to lower our standards, especially regarding how we treat others, and to become more like the world and less fervent in our belief in the Lord's return. Sure, now and then we do face those who, with their charts and prophetic calculations, claim to have a date for Christ's return. But for the most part, the danger facing Seventh-day Adventists is not that they are setting dates for Christ's soon return. Rather, the danger is that as the years pass, the promise of the Second Coming starts to play a much smaller role in our thinking. Yes, the longer we are here, the closer we get to the Second Coming. On the other hand, the longer we are here, the easier it is for us to imagine his return as so far away that it really doesn't impact our daily lives. Scripture warns against this kind of complacency. As Peter said, if Jesus is to return, and we are to face judgment, Christians should live lives of holiness and godliness, as Peter said in verse 11. The reality of the second coming, whenever it happens, should impact how we live now. And so to finish today, how much does the reality of the second coming affect you in your daily life and thinking? What, if anything, does your answer say to you about your life and faith? Thursday, June 15, a final appeal. Peter ends his epistle with a theme that has pervaded it from the start, living holy lives and being careful not to be led astray by, as it says in 2 Peter 3.17, the error of the wicked. Question, read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. To whom is Peter appealing, and what is he warning about in this appeal? 
2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures." You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. How interesting that Peter ends his epistle with an appeal to the writings of our beloved brother Paul. Paul also wrote of the need to live at peace while waiting for the second coming of Jesus and to use the time to develop holy lives. We read about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And in Romans twelve eighteen, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Philippians two twelve. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Also notice the way that Peter's reference to the writings of Paul shows that Paul's writings were highly valued early in the Christian history. Whether or not Peter is referring to the whole collection of Paul's writings now found in the New Testament, or only a subset of them cannot be determined. Nevertheless, Peter's comments show that Paul's letters were highly regarded. Finally, Peter comments that Paul's writings can be misconstrued just like other scriptures. The Greek word grapha literally means writings, but in this context it clearly means sacred writings, such as the books of Moses and the prophets. Here is very early evidence that Paul's writings had taken on authority like the authority of the Hebrew Bible. And considering what we read earlier about false teachers who promise liberty, it's not hard to imagine people using Paul's writings about liberty and grace as an excuse for sinful behaviour. Paul strongly emphasised righteousness by faith alone in Romans chapter 3, but nothing in his writings gives people a licence for sin, as we read in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. 
for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul himself had to deal with this error in regard to what he had been preaching and teaching about righteousness by faith. Yet Peter warns those who twist his writings to do so at the risk of, as he says in verse 16 of Second Peter 3, their own destruction. And so to finish the day, what are choices you can make right now that can help you to live the kind of life that we have been called to live in Christ Jesus. Friday, June 16. From our perspective, it can seem as if the second coming is greatly delayed. Jesus obviously knew that we would feel this way, and in some parables he warned against what could happen if we weren't careful and watching during this time. Take the parable of the two servants in Matthew 24. It was mentioned in Wednesday's study. They both expected their master to return, but they reached two different conclusions about his return. One decided he must be ready for the master to return at any time. The other said that the master was delayed and therefore he took it as an opportunity to act in an evil manner. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 634, Because we know not the exact time of his coming, we are commanded to watch. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Luke 12.37 Those who watch for the Lord's coming are not waiting in idle expectancy. The expectation of Christ's coming is to make men fear the Lord and fear his judgments upon transgression. It is to awaken them to the great sin of rejecting his offers of mercy. Those who are watching for the Lord are purifying their souls by obedience to the truth. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. In class, discuss your answer to Monday's question about the second coming. What are some ways in which we deal with the fact that Christ has not yet returned? What can we learn from one another's answers? 2. What teachings, practices and beliefs do we hold as Seventh-day Adventists that do not come from culture or reason or tradition, but are solely from the Word of God? 3. As we saw during the week, Peter linked sinful tendencies and passions with false teaching. The lesson had this statement. It's not just a coincidence that sinful passions can lead to false teachings, is it? Why is it not just a coincidence? 
What could be the various links between the two? And four, Albert Einstein presented to the world the amazing idea that time is not absolute. That is, depending on where you are and how fast you are moving, time in your frame of reference will be different from someone else's in another frame of reference. The point is, time is something very mysterious, and it acts in ways that we don't fully understand. How might this idea help us to realise that Time for God is not the same as it is for us, especially in the context of Christ's having not yet returned. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Mother of Many and it's the second part. Every week we talked about God and read from the Bible. We prayed together and then we ate. At first I think they listened just to be polite and get a hot meal. But as time went by they became more interested in what I was trying to teach them. Soon the boys were treating me like a mother, confiding in me and trusting me. Some of them told me about their desire to get rid of their drug habits or about things they had stolen. I listened and counselled them about how to live a happy, honest life instead. I told them about the joys of hard work and honest labour. I told them about people in the Bible and how they resisted temptation and followed God's plan, often changing the world around them. The boys listened and were inspired to trust God to change them. I encouraged the ones who had parents to return home to their families. It took a lot of talking, but eventually some decided to go home. One boy, Pierre, had run away from home when he was only seven years old. He had lost some money he was supposed to take to his mother and he was afraid of being punished. So he ran away. Eventually he arrived in the capital city where he lived on the streets for the next eight years. After I told him the story of the prodigal son, Pierre agreed to return home. But he was afraid to go by himself, so I agreed to go with him. We went to the bus station together and bought tickets to his hometown. When we arrived, we walked down almost forgotten streets until we found his house. His mother stared at the tall young man standing in front of her, unable to tell that this was the little boy she had lost so long ago. She thought her son was dead. She stared at Pierre for a long minute. When her mind at last grasped whom he was there before her, she threw her arms around him and hugged him tightly, weeping for joy. Then she began calling her neighbours to see her son, who had been lost but had come home. That night there was joy in one home over a lost child who had returned. I stayed in Pierre's town overnight so I could take him to visit the local pastor. I explained that Pierre had recently accepted Jesus as his saviour and returned to his mother's house. He would need lots of nurturing. And the story stops there, but it's going to be continued next week. Have a happy Sabbath. This lesson has been read by Dr Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.